Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Fraud. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Very excited to welcome everyone here this evening for the first session of what is Halakha, the fascinating history of an essential term with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukier. Uh, Rabbi Zukier is a faculty member for Drisha uh, as well as a postdoctoral fellow in Jewish studies at McGill University. He's received his PhD in ancient Judaism at Yale University and has also been a member of Yeshiva University's Kol Elyon. Uh, he's also an alumnus of Yeshiva University's uh, Smicha program, as well as of Yeshiva Haaretzion, the Wexner and Tikva fellowships. Uh, he's lectured widely across North America, is a founder at the Lair House and has also served on the editorial committee of tradition and edited two books on contemporary Jewish thought. So we're very excited to be learning with Rabbi Zukir this evening for the beginning of this, uh, this three-part series on halakha. We are going to be studying the different meanings of the term halakha as the term and its associations develop over time and use that as an opportunity to consider what the term says about the practice of halakha. How do we translate it? Is it law? If so, is it theoretical or practical law? What are the cases where we say that something is halakha but we don't rule like it or we don't follow it? And how do we understand it when it's used not necessarily to introduce uh, a, a specific legal ruling, but a midrashic teaching, a paragraph of legal text rather than a specific rule? Uh, and what can we learn from some of these questions and more about what it means in recent times when the notion of halachic Judaism or halachic Jews starts to come up, something that hasn't necessarily been uh, a primary defining term in the past, but that seems to be uh, picking up in its frequency. What can we learn from uh, the history of the term in terms of the implications for such things? So I will be putting a copy of tonight's source sheet in the chat. Folks can follow along and uh, we'll also be screen sharing, I believe, so that there will be an opportunity for people to look at it directly on the screen. For folks who are uh, following on, on Facebook Live, it'll also be uh, streaming on there. And with that, I am going to hand it over to Rabbi Zakir. Thank you so much, Michael. And I guess just from hearing Michael's description, we probably all, all know what there is to know already. So uh, I guess we'll, we'll review a little bit some of the issues uh, over the next hour and then the, the following couple of weeks. I'll just reiterate one thing I see a couple of uh, familiar faces and some familiar names and other other uh, new friends. And uh, to the extent possible, ever, everyone's really uh, welcomed and invited to uh, to joining with video. It really makes it feel more more real in its uh, in our virtual interaction. So um, yeah, so our goal is going to be to try to figure out what the term halacha means. We're not going to aim at the phenomenon itself directly. I think it's uh, maybe too large of a topic, but the, the term, at least, we can hopefully get some some uh, handle on it, some grasp on it. And today, I think we're going to deal with the the classic question, which is when Chazal, when the rabbis uh, in classical rabbinic literature talk about halacha, what exactly are they talking about? What does the term mean? How is it deployed? How does it work exactly? 
Um, and we're gonna we're gonna do that basically. Well, we'll this hopefully will be uh, relatively discussion based. I, I want I want to hear your suggestions, and we'll work with that. But we're also gonna look at a lot of different uh, cases where the Talmud uses the term and see how it's uh, how it's deployed, how it how it uh, how it's used, and uh, draw conclusions from there. So before we go into the to the handout, and uh, you know, I become a little uh, tiny face in the corner of the screen when while we're still here, hopefully uh, maximally seeing each other to the extent we can. Um, just do people have thoughts? What what would uh, what would you say? What what is halacha in a in in a in a word or in a sentence? The term again. What what does the term mean? You don't have to do this if you don't want to, but I think it's productive, Jason. Yeah. The way in which you should walk, like the way the way you should lead uh, a life, right? So like it comes from the word halach, like to walk, lalachet, right? So like it's the way you should go about your business, like day to day. So, right. Yeah. I would say the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So I think this is the 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 standard etymology people have, which which makes a lot of sense, right? Halacha from halach from to walk. And uh, and right uh, with the hand at the end, it's a it's a noun. It's an abstract noun. It's the it's the way you go. It's the path you you lead. And uh, your experience of of uh, Judaism is largely informed by halakha, and that's the path you go down. I think that's uh, you know Jason and Martha. Thank you. That's that's sort of the standard term. We'll see a couple of sources that go in that direction. Uh, we're not going to question that. You know, there are some people who have like far out theories that maybe like relates to uh, Akkadian tax law terms or something like that. Um, we're going to leave that on the side, but we're going to get we're going to try to get a bit a bit more specific than that. Within that uh, question, what is the path? And when we talk about a path, um, you know, how exactly is it applied? And one way of getting into that is to think about um, what you might call related terms in the same semantic field as halakha. The terms that are you know the neighbors that maybe overlap a little bit with halakha or are distinct from right. What's you know one way of asking this is what's the opposite of halakha or what's the Complement of halacha. That's an open question. I I don't think you mean this, but the thing that came to my mind you when you said it was off the derech. I don't think that's where you're going with this, but okay. So that's a image. bit. I, I think that's a bit more. I mean, if you're if you're thinking about someone who who sees themselves as committed to halacha versus someone who uh, sees themselves as no longer committed to halakha, that would that would work. But I think we're we're staying away from sociology here. We're we're sticking uh, to the you know to the category itself, not the how people relate to it per se. But yeah, that's that's a fair point. If we were going down the sociological route, that would be a good uh, contrast. What what else? What halakha versus? There's more than one right answer. Agadah. Agadah. Okay, so that's I think the classic answer people would give. And we're going to, I think a future class, we're going to talk about the distinction between Halakha and Agadah. Interestingly, we'll see this a little bit in Chazal, but the, the real development of that distinction and building that up into the main uh, categorical distinction is actually uh, post-Talmudic. It's mostly a medieval uh, uh, construction, that, that distinction. It does come up a little bit in the Gemara, as we'll see, but that's one classic way of thinking about it, right? Halakha is the law, and Agadah is the stories, is the narrative, is the color, is the thought. Um, and uh, that, that's, I think, a standard distinction many people make. Um, and, uh, you know, you can problematize it, but it's, it's worth being aware of it. Uh, Ellen. Uh, if halaha is the law, an opposite could be anarchy. Okay, right, that's true. Halakha versus lack of halakha. 
Although one thing that's interesting is through most of its history, uh, Jewish law has been not the primary law of the land, right? It's certainly once people start using the term halakha, which is a uh, spoiler alert, post-biblical, and it probably only starts being used in rabbinic literature. So let's say the last, uh, you know, 1800 years, there's been very, very little Jewish self-sovereignty within that period, right? So usually the absence of halakha is not anarchy. Maybe you can call it Jewish anarchy. I don't know. Um, although uh, that might be something else, but it, it's more, it's just the, the a vacuum of, of uh, religious law and structure, right? But there is, there almost always is a legal system alongside halakha. Um, but yeah, I think it, in terms of law overall, definitely law versus anarchy. Halakha, interestingly, uh, most of the time doesn't fit that, that distinction. What else? Any other suggestions what we might contrast halakha with? Is civil law uh, the opposite of halakha? Okay, great. So civil law, that's another, right, I guess it's similar to Alan's point, right, uh, from a different angle, that uh, you have halakha as the Jewish law, and then you have the civil law or whatever the, the controlling law is in the location you're in. Uh, and that's in some ways a contrast, although I mean, you do find that a little bit, right? With r rabbinic literature talks about the uh, dina de malchuta, right? The law of the, uh, of the government, the law of, this, of the host society or however you want to refer to it, um, right? So that, that is another, another uh, opposite of sorts. Okay, I think we have some good, some good thoughts and uh, let's, let's jump into some of the sources and see how this plays itself out. Can I suggest one more, but I'm not, I don't know if it's covered already, is, is Minhag? Okay, great. Yes, that's a, that's a great one. We'll see, uh, we'll see how that comes up. But um, Minhag is usually, right, Minhag is practice as opposed to Halakha, which is law, but maybe also practice. So I think it's, it's, a, great, it's a, great, uh, a great case to raise to what extent there's a, there's a hard distinction between Minhag and Halakha and to what extent they're really uh, overlapping. Great. Let's, so let's jump in to the, uh, the handout. And again, if you prefer viewing it on your own computer, you should have the file in the chat box. So we'll start just with looking at some definitions that were given in, uh, well, one tra traditional and one and two semi-academic uh, Jewish sources. So the Sefer Aruch, 11th century uh, Italian work that's basically a dictionary of rabbinic literature, they give maybe the first, uh, the first definition of halacha that's set out as a formal definition. And it says, perush hilchata, that's hilchata, that's the Aramaic uh, cognate of halacha. It's the same, the same word, basically, just in Aramaic. Perush hilchata, the meaning of hilchata. Davar sheholeh uba, something that goes and continues on. Mikodem v'adso, from beginning to end. So that's one option, right? The thing that goes all the way back, right? Because the law goes all the way back. Generally, people think about law as going, you know, going very far back. Of course, usually you have a founding moment, right? Whether Sinai uh, in Jewish law or the constitution in America or whatever it is, you often have a founding moment, but usually you see it as going all the way back. That's one possibility. Oh, or the going might be something else. The going, the goingness of halacha might be She Yisrael mital chimbo. I think this is a bit closer to the suggestion that uh, Jason and Martha made before, right? It's what Israel goes along with. It's the path that Israel takes. So like the, in, uh, in Arabic, they say al-sirah, and that the term al-sirat in Arabic means like the true path, the true path of religion. So he's drawing on that, uh, is, which is interesting that, uh, you know, he, he, defines, he defines the Jewish term based on the Arabic term. Presumably that was more uh, culturally salient to at least some of his readers. 
Um, so that's, this is a really interesting definition, right? Either that it goes all the way back, right? It's the law because it goes all the way back, halacha, going, or it's the thing that people walk along or, or, or take with them. Um, one, what's, what's missing a, a bit from this? I don't know in terms of the, the meaning of, of the word halacha, but what? If you were trying to give a definition for uh, Jewish law, is there something you might have thrown in in addition to this? This is a more a Rorschach test than a, than a real question. But one thing that's interesting not, interestingly not there is the idea of commandedness, right? It's focused less on this was imposed on Israel on the second definition. It's more, this is what they do, right? It's almost a more a description of what happens rather than a prescription, the way it's formulated here, which is interesting. So this definition gets quoted in a couple of different 19th century uh, you call them uh, maskilim, or the, the second wave of the Haskalah that's a, a bit further, a bit uh, a more uh, in the Orthodox and Orthodox adjacent communities. And uh, first, uh, uh, Yitzhak Isaac Halevi, the author of Dorot Harishonim, he talks about this as well. And he's talking about Mishnah, this is, he's talking about Mishnah, and he says um, that uh, the words of Mishnah relate to the explicit Torah, that's that's uh, that, that's one thing that Mishnah includes, right? It talks about biblical material. The other thing that gets discussed in Mishnah is those traditions, Kabbalah, that which was passed on, tradition uh, that appear in the Mishnah and Brighton and other texts with the term halachot, right? So halachot refers to traditions. Okay, so this is not exactly the same as, as what we saw so far. He now quotes. The Aruch, he says, this is the same as the Aruch, although I, I might dispute that. And he, but he explains, So right, that, that first definition, the law is something that goes all the way back. He says it's, it's specifically the acceptance of Israel going back to Sinai. So he's filling in some of the blanks. I don't think the Aruch meant this. I think the Aruch just meant, you know, the law goes all the way back. But the, uh, but the Yitzhak Isaac Levi gives, gives this uh, further definition that it's the fact that the Jews accepted it. And here, this is a bit closer to a, a commandedness theory. I mean, he's focusing on the acceptance, but presumably if you're accepting it, it's because it was commanded. So whereas the Aruch himself seems to be more focused on as practice, what you're doing, um, right, Isaac Halevi seems to be more focused on this idea of acceptance, that being commanded and being accepted, and he focuses, he invokes Sinai. Um, although he also, as we saw at the beginning of the piece, he says that halachot are the traditions, the things that were, that uh, go back, that don't have necessarily have an explicit biblical source, um, but are, are traditions that are followed for that reason. And we'll look at one more uh, definition of halacha, and then we'll, we'll take some questions. I saw there's at least one question. Uh, Zechariah Frankel and his Darchei, Amishnah, also an early, uh, you know, semi-scholarly work on, on this, and he quotes the Aruch, and he quotes the, the whole passage that we had, and then he quotes uh, uh, Musafia, who has an, like, a, 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 an, he has an edition of the Aruch with further definition, so he added, so he wants to say that there's a parallel between Mishpat and Halakha, based on, on uh, the verse and the parallel in Arktuba. So the point is, he wants to say Halakha is the equivalent of Mishpat, which I think is, you know, is a very close in meaning. Mishpat is law, Halakha is something like law. He wants to draw that comparison. And then he says, Right, 
מפרש עניין מענייני התורה, בלתי לסמוך על מקרא, sorry, there was a typo, או לעשות עצמו סניף למקרא. So again, he talks about the idea of halacha is something that's not part of mikra. It's not part of the Bible, but it's something that's added onto or uh, in parallel to the Bible. This is halacha mufshetet, or as he translates it, abstracta halacha. Right? That's I guess German um, ab abstract halacha, which uh, again is not. It's more abstract. It's not derived. From the biblical text, it's this it's this category that somehow goes back as an independent uh, tradition. So these are a couple of definitions again working within the same larger orbit, but you can see different emphases here. The emphasis on the fact that it goes all the way back, the emphasis on the fact that it's practiced by the Jewish people, the fact that it's an independent tradition that's not mikra, it's not Bible, right? There's a contrast here. I asked you contrast uh, versus X. No one said Alcha versus Bible because not, that's not how the term is used nowadays. But if you go back to the way it's used in rabbinic literature, that's often the way it's used. There's a contrast between Alcha and Mikra. You have the Bible, you have the biblical text and interpretations thereof. And then you have Halacha or Halachot traditions that don't necessarily have a biblical uh, proof text. So that's our first, our first piece in terms of definition. I'm curious if there's any, I think there's at least one question and there may be other, other thoughts as well. So uh, Jason, why don't you go ahead? Um, you were talking about um, how, like, certain people view halacha less as, like, a legalistic, like, le is less based on, like, legalistic foundations and more based on, like, what the practice is. Yeah. Haven't a lot of, like, very traditional po post scheme tacitly acknowledge that as well? So, like, um, I think the Orach HaShochan, he, he, was, he was very well known for bending halacha in ways to conform with sociological practice that contradict, contradicted uh, um, traditional things written in, uh, in halachas, um, halachas farim. So haven't, haven't, and like Rav Moshe Feinstein, I think to some extent also, also did, did this, maybe you disagree, I don't, I don't know, I'm curious what your opinion is on that, but like, like, isn't isn't it common for 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 post scheme to to bend halacha to to tr like traditional sociological practice? Okay, great question. And just one thing I want to emphasize in terms of this series, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to cover the full phenomenon of halacha in all its ways. And there are a handful of other drisha classes on halacha, and maybe they'll cover more parts of it. We're focusing squarely on the term. So yes, 100%. The archa sholchan, and he's really following the path of the baliat tosafot are among, among those who, uh, who give greater weight to practice at the expense of sources. There's always a balance uh, between you know, your, your authoritative sources and what, how people practice. Um, and that's one question in terms of how to do halakha, how to, how to paskin, how to you know, posek halakha. That's one question. We're not dealing with that question. We're just trying to understand what the word means. We're asking a, a, a more basic question, although I think you're right. This is definitely relevant. It's definitely parallel. The end and the way the way in which you translate halakha or define halakha as about things that are authoritative because Jews have been doing them for a long time versus things that were accepted, things that were part of the tradition, your, your, the nuance of your definition may very well correlate to your preferred mode of how to interpret halakha, right? 100%, but um, we're, we're focusing on the term just, just because it, it's, it's a big enough topic as it is.
Um, but yeah, great, great point. Other other questions or, or thoughts? Sorry. No, don't, no I, need to apologize. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's curious that that's the word we use because when I think about walking, right? By definition, walking involves, often involves taking different directions and different routes to get somewhere. So I'm okay. curious to me that that's the word that we use that is so much part of our lives that we use a word like that as opposed to a word like mishpat. Which um, is a very, you know, there's a, I, I, I may be off, you know, off your, the answer you're looking for. It's a fair question. I think part of this is, do you look at, do you think of halakha as walking or do you think of halakha as a path? Right, and a path is more set, and uh, and and you don't you have less flexibility. Whereas walking, you have more flexibility. And again, that does tie in to some of these nuances of definition, right? It all it all goes back to that: how much autonomy do you give, you know, the people of Israel um, as uh, as as they follow halacha, sort of the way they do it, uh, versus how much do you focus on the sources? And and this does touch on the question of minhag, which um, was mentioned a couple times before. Minhag is is more clearly what what sort of bubbles up from public practice, whereas halakha, at least on some definitions, is more about the, uh, the clear sources. Okay, great. Let's jump back to the sheet, and we're going to move from some of these later, uh, later definitions to the Talmud itself, to rabbinic literature itself, and see how, how, uh, how the term is used within Mishnah, Gemara, etc. And obviously, there's many more sources than we could possibly cover here. But I tried to take a representative sample and deal with some of the larger issues. So uh, the, uh, this, uh, an extended discussion in Tractate Gittin talks about the relationship between the written Torah and the oral Torah. And we'll just read it quickly. I'll translate Darsha Yehuda Bar Nachmani Shimon Ben Lakish. So he gave the following uh, homily. Write down these things, God says to Moses. Because uh, on the basis of these things, literally on the mouth of these things. So write down these things, because on the mouth of these things, I made the covenant with you. So how does it work? Is it about what's written, or is it about what's oral, based on the mouth? What is it? Which one is it? And it says, Well, there must be two separate tracks here. There's the written Torah and the oral Torah. And you're not allowed to write down the oral Torah, and you're not allowed to say by heart the written Torah. There are two separate tracks. Um, not, not for now. The question of um, why it is that many people say the written Torah, and I think we just about all of us use uh, written versions of the oral Torah. That's a question for another time. But so that's the principle here. And how do we? Uh, and then now look at the next line and, and think about what this means for our question. Sort of a parallel teaching from the house, the Beit Midrash Rabbi Shmuel, right? The same that, that same verse, um, presumably. So Ela, you can write down these words, meaning the Torah that God's giving Moses. You can write down this, but you can't write down halachot. So if I were to ask you, what is what does uh, what does halachot correspond to in this Talmudic passage? What would you say? What are you not allowed to write down? What's, the, what's this passage teaching? But you're not allowed to write down the oral Torah. You're only allowed to write down the written Torah. So the first teaching says, 
written versus oral. The second teaching says this versus halachot. So the this is clearly the written Torah that God's giving to Moses. And the halachot is the oral Torah. So this is what I call halachah's general sense. Sometimes the term halachah is used to refer to the entire oral Torah. Everything that's, that's not written in the Torah is part of halachah in general. And, and in fact, in some ways, this is what came out of uh, the, the Zachariah Frankel's definition. But this idea that anything that's not biblical is halacha. So I think that is one of the one of the definitions of halacha it, used in rabbinic literature is this general sense, including everything. But more often than not, it's a subset of that. And we're going to see more examples of this now. But at least it's good to start with that and the contrast between mikra and halacha, right? The Bible and halacha, maybe including everything else, at least in some version of that term. But, but again, once you get to uh, once you get into other sources, we'll see it's often narrower than that. So we find in this, I think, uh, fairly well-known Mishnah, some of you may have heard of it, uh, the, well, actually the term halakha is used twice here, so we'll, we'll read it uh, fairly closely. It's talking about different areas of, 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 well, you could say of halakha, or different areas of Jewish teaching that have less than clear biblical sources. So heter nidarim porchin ba'avir. The permission of vows is a way of of resolving or absolving oneself of a vow so that you don't need to follow it without penalty. There's no clear biblical source, so it's sort of flying in the air. Right? There's no, nothing rooting it. There's nothing connecting it to the ground. There's nothing for it to rely on. Okay, so that's, that's the description, right? The rabbis came up with this uh, creatively or however you understand it without a clear biblical source. Maybe they have a tradition, but they have no clear biblical source. So that's one. Hilchot Shabbat which we might translate as the laws pertaining to Shabbat, whether that has an uppercase L or a lowercase L, we'll talk about in a second. But the laws pertaining to Shabbat, Hagigot, right, the law of the Karman Hagigot brought to the temple on holidays, the Hamilot of ex, uh, expropriating something from the temple treasury. All of these laws, these are like, different ways of translating this, but this, the, the classic translation, these are like mountains hanging by a thread. Right, so the Torah is up here. There's a tiny little thread coming out of the Torah connecting to these massive mountains, to these large areas of halakha that have, you know, they have not a clear connection to the Torah. They have a, a minor connection to the Torah. There's a very little amount of Bible and a lot of halakha. Again, this contrast between mikra and halakha, right? The, a, a lot of non-biblical material and very little Biblical material. Let's take the example of Shabbat, right? What, how many, uh, right? There's 39 melachot, categories of work that are prohibited according to the rabbis. How many of them are explicit in the Torah or in the Bible overall? Uh, depends who you're asking. Uh, it definitely says that you shouldn't light a fire. Lighting That's a fire is definitely there. What else do you have? Um, it says that you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't leave your moshav. Um, it's not clear that that's hotzah because I think the Rambam says that the 39 malachot are like one category and you, you're high of mita for them. And he actually put, he actually said, he connects the verse, that verse of not leaving your Moshav to um, the prohibition of walking like 2000 Amot out of a city. Right, leaving the so, tomb, leaving the area or yeah. carrying, whatever, whichever one it is, a different, uh, you know, early interpretations take it different ways. Fine, so maybe you have one or two more. And uh, maybe Harish and Katsir, depending on how you understand the verse, harvesting and, uh, and uh, plowing, maybe included too. So if you're, if you're a maximalist, 
maybe you can get to five, five uh, milchoda, and only four of them are of the thirty-nine. Most of them are not there, and so it's like it's like a mountain hanging by a thread. Or there's another translation of that that means it's like a uh, a little bush, a little uh, uh, a little uh, small plant that's hanging on to the ground by a thread. However you translate it, there's a lot of mikra and not a lot of halacha. And the difference between mikra and halacha we spoke about already, but it's this other term that's interesting. Hilchot Shabbat, right? The laws of Shabbat, or Chagigot, or Me'ilot. So when we talk about the law of Shabbat, there's, there's really two different ways of translating this. I think the way that might be somewhat anachronistic, we project later ideas of the term, is to say, oh, it's like, you know, it's just like you can buy, you can go, and, uh, you know, Hilchot Shabbat, it's like an area, it's a field, it's an official field of study, right? The, the laws of Shabbat as a, as a concrete entity. That's one way you might take it, which may or may not be anachronistic. The other way is, it's not like laws of Shabbat with a capital L, it's more like the laws of Shabbat, meaning a halacha is a teaching, right? Any teaching is a halacha, any tradition, or, you know, at least excluding the ones that don't apply, but standard, you know, standard teaching can be called a halacha, and you put them all together, you get the halachot of Shabbat, right? But it's not like there's an area of the law of Shabbat. So the que- there's an interesting question here whether we can understand this as referring to a field of study of Hilchot Shabbat or whether it just means the various specific laws that pertain to Shabbat or Chagigah or Mi'ilah. So that's an interesting question because we don't generally find this term Hilchot X so much in rabbinic literature. We find it in a few cases. Here it may just be referring to you know, all the little halachot put together rather than Hilchot as ta- talking about a field itself as an entity on its own. So that's that's a, uh, that's a first source that talks about this. And I think other sources point to halakha as a distinct field in, in other ways as well. I mean, not necessarily, you know, maybe a capital, uh, maybe lowercase, uh, lowercase L law, but still law in, con- in contrast to other teachings. And we'll look at this next source and then I'll take some questions. So this, the Tosefta and Brachot talks about a Baal Keri, um, a, a man who has a, an emission, a seminal omission is not supposed to study Torah uh, on, on a, according to Takanat Ezra. So it talks about the various things that one should or shouldn't do until you go to the mikvah. In any event, um, so there, Rabbi Yehuda, Omer, Yehuda's view, he's, he says, sami komakom. Fine. And then we say, and we talk about other, other uh, in this case, both men and women with various uh, emissions uh, and such. Uh, so they're impure, they're ritually impure. And the question is, what are they allowed to study? So we say, They're allowed to read, right? The Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So Tanakh, Bible, that's one set of things. Um, they can study Mishnah, right? Mishnah, the, the, the corpus, those six books of teachings. Bimidrash, Midrash, which means the explication of the biblical verses. So we have all of that. And then also, how would you translate that? Maybe something like other legal traditions, even those that are, presumably, even those that are not within, certainly not within the Bible, also probably not within the Mishnah or the Midrash, but there may be some freestanding legal traditions that you can study. That would be halachot, and agadot would be maybe freestanding non-legal traditions. Right? They're not in Midrash, but they're, they're, you know, they're just out there. They're teachings that you heard from someone that you can pass on. You're allowed to study all of these things. Um, fine, and then there's a limitation, the Balkari can't, there are other limitations. But one thing that's interesting here in this list is we find not just the contrast between Halakha and Tanakh, but 
we find a bunch of different areas of the oral law that are specified, Mishnah, Midrash, Agadot, and Halachot is a separate area. So it would seem like, at least on the way the term is sometimes used, Halachot refers not to the whole oral law, it can mean that sometimes, but maybe it just refers to traditions that are not already you know, canonized, are not part of an organized work, are not part of Mishnah, are not part of Midrash, but it's just the Halakha, it's a freestanding tradition, or it's an area, right, it's that area, that, uh, that corpus uh, of material. All right, uh, questions, thoughts? Um, right, I see someone sent me a, um, oh, I see there were a couple of comments before, right, Sophia, uh, mentioned Hotsa'a correctly, and I see Mordechai, uh, someone uh, DM'd me the practices of, right? maybe the practices of Shabbat rather than the laws, right? Again, I think that, that basically is what I was uh, getting at with the lowercase, lowercase L law, right? Practices of or the teachings related to. Um, any, other, any other questions or, or thoughts on this? Okay, so we'll, uh, we'll, jump, we'll jump right back. And uh, another, another passage, this in the, in the Talmud, about that, that sort of delineates the different areas of study. This is talking about the 80 students that Hillel had, and 30 of them were on a spiritual level where they could have, they, could, they were equivalent to Moses in terms of having the divine presence rest on them, uh, and some 30 were equivalent to, to Yoshua ben Nun, fine. And, uh, and the weakest of them was Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, and here's what they said about him. They said, Shalohiniach, Mikra, Mishnah, Talmud, Halachot, Agadot. So far, that's the same as what we saw, right? Bible, Mishnah. Well, he doesn't have uh, Midrash. He has Talmud instead. Talmud probably means the explanation of the Mishnah because the Talmud wasn't written but there were explanations for the Mishnah. Halachot, Agadot. And they have all sorts of other things here. Dikduke Torah, Dikduke Sofrim, the details of Torah and the details of, uh, of the scribes. Kalim v'chamurim, Ugzerot Shavot, various hermeneutical principles and, and their application. Uh, right, the uh, different intercalations and uh, quantitative teachings, the conversations of angels, demons, and uh, palm trees, presumably relating to demons regarding palm trees, uh, and the uh, proverbs of, of those who watch things and of foxes, the big thing and the small thing, which might refer to philosophy on some interpretations, um, or you know, it spells it out here, however you interpret that. In any event, we see again, Halakha is clearly one field of study within the broader, uh, the broader oral tradition, and it seems like it's specifically things that are not already part of Mishnah, are not, or are not even part of Talmud, it's a freestanding tradition. So this is like the smaller meaning of, of Halakha, that it can be a specific tradition, not um, you know, it may, it can, sometimes you can talk about a collection of traditions in a certain area, or you can just talk about the various pieces of the tradition. So I think that's, that's one angle, the contrasting, right? We wanted to find how we can contrast it with Mikra, with Bible. We can contrast with different areas of the oral law if we want to get a fine definition of what halacha is. But there's another area that we can turn to as well, which is to contrast halacha to din. How would we translate the word din? What, what does din mean? The Hebrew word din, that is. Judgment. Okay, so din can mean judgment, although I think the meaning we're going to look at here is going to be slightly different, you know, maybe overlapping a bit, but, but pulling in a different direction. Um, 
other other definitions or other people want to just see some of the examples okay i guess we'll jump in then so um we're not going to read this all inside but here's a uh, this happens a, a handful of times especially with rabbi akiva rabbi akiva is a big fan of halakha and he's more skeptical about din so we have a bunch of places where rabbi akiva says you're you're saying this interpretation of the biblical text im halakha nikabel if what you're telling me is a halakha Presumably that means a tradition, something you know, something you have your teacher taught you, something that was passed down, then we'll accept what you're saying. If you're offering me a din, then I can respond. And then he gives some logical argumentation as to, uh, you know, as to, to why, why the, the reasoning suggested would be wrong. It's about uh, mi'ila, about, uh, right, about uh, expropriating things from the temple. So din for these purposes, um, and we find this throughout Midrash Halakha, throughout Tanaitic Midrash, this idea of, of Hareani Dan. I will judge this issue. But when we say you're judging an issue, we don't literally mean that you're judging it. What we mean is you're using logic. Right? So din usually refers to logic uh, or a logical interpretation or a logical argument as to what the law should be in theory. And very often in Midrash, you'll have someone will say, okay, the din should be X, but we have a Xerah Tagatu. We have a biblical verse that proves that the, that the conclusion should be Y. And uh, very often, um, yeah, very often, I didn't give a source for this, uh, just for reasons of space. Very often, the, 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 the uh, theoretical law, the thing one could argue for that should be the law is the Din, the theoretical law. And then when you get your conclusion based on a derivation from a verse or whatnot, the conclusion ends up being the halakha, right? So there's, there's this distinction between din and halakha, where halakha can be actually two different things. In the, the case we saw, halakha is the tradition, as opposed to din, the logical explanation. And corresponding to that, related to that, din is the theoretical law, right? Because you arrive at it through logic. It should be the law in theory. But halakha is the, the uh, practical law or the conclusion of what the law is. Uh, based on whatever other arguments. Logic isn't the only argument, right? There are arguments from uh, authority of scripture, that sometimes carry the day, and that would be the halakha as opposed to the din. Um, again, this idea of halakha in, in, in the first sense, halakha is a tradition. We see here, right? just one example among many. These are the halakha that they said in Hananiah's attic. Whatever, that's where they had a discussion. These traditions are preserved, and that these are right. It's important to say halachot because it's not in the Mishnah, right? Halacha in this narrow sense, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist uh, for you to, you know, it's not part of a corpus that everyone knows. It's things that you sort of have to gather. This person has this tradition from his teacher. That person has a tradition from their teacher, and you need to you need to put it together. So that's an example of halacha as as a tradition in that in that same way. Now, what do we do? With not just halacha, but halacha Moshe mi Sinai, but it seems like a special case of halacha, and you know the term comes up in a bunch of places throughout rabbinic literature. It actually may shift a little bit in how it functions. We're not going to get into all those details now. We just want to get a, a general sense of how halacha Moshe mi Sinai works. Right, literally, halacha Moshe mi Sinai, the law given to Moses at Sinai. Right. So, if you just think about it literally, it makes it makes a lot of sense along the lines, it's like uh, an extreme halakha, right? If a halakha is a tradition that you have going back, halakha Moshe Sinai is a tradition going back all the way, 
right, all the way to the Torah. The Torah was given, the written Torah was given, and the oral Torah was given simultaneously, you know, on, on, uh, in this view. And, uh, and part of what was given is this halachal Moshe Messina, this tradition that's then passed down, but it goes all the way back, right? So, and again, of, co of course, as we mentioned before, the, the dichotomy between halacha as what people do versus as what has a real grounding or has a real source going back, uh, aside from what people do, this would, uh, the Moshe Sinai has a, has a very clear appeal to authority, which is that it goes back to the divine revelation at Sinai, right? It's not, it's not only resting on the authority of this is what people practice, it's resting on the authority of revelation. Let's just look at one example here in the Mishnah, in Idriot, uh, which is all about testimony. It's really, you could say, all about halachot in the sense of people passing on earlier traditions. I have a tradition from my teacher, Rabbi Yochum Zakai, hear from his teacher, his teacher from his teacher, all the way back, they heard it, this teaching from, given to, that was originally given to Moshe at Sinai. Uh, this apocalyptic depiction of what Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, will do at the end of days. We don't want to get into the details of it. What's interesting is, well, it's not a halakha at all, right? It's not really, there's no, there's no law here. Halakha doesn't mean law. Halakha means a, a traditional teaching, which is certainly what it is. The tradition goes all the way back. So that's an example of that. There's another term used throughout the, uh, in many places in the Bavli called hilchata gemirila. Right, hilchata, the uh, halakha, gemiri, so uh, it sort of can mean learned, right? Like gemara, study. So hilchata gemirila, it was learned as a halakha. And the question is what that means. Rashi, both in this case and consistently, says, Hilchadag Mirila, Mi Sinai. Rashi says, Hilchadag Mirila always means, Halachal Moshe Mi Sinai. And the Rambam consistently says, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It's the law based on tradition. It's a tradition. It goes back. How far back does it go? It goes back far, but not necessarily to Sinai. So the question of Hilchadag Mirila, whether those are all it's just a synonym for Halachal Moshe Mi Sinai, as Rashi thinks. Or whether it's something else, it's just an old tradition, is a bit of a debate. And again, this goes to the question we mentioned before, right? For the Rambam, um, it's not to go all the way back to Sinai, but it still carries real authority. Um, whereas for Rashi, the Yochadag Mirila, uh, is authority stems from the fact that it goes back to Sinai. There's a, uh, my, uh, my doctoral advisor, Christine Hayes, has an article about, about uh, whether Acham Moshemi Sinai is equivalent to a Doraita or not, whether it's equivalent to a biblical teaching or not, according to the rabbis. And her argument is it really fluctuates a lot. It goes back and forth in different, in the different the layers, different earlier and later sources of classical rabbinic literature. And in the Bavli, it's generally treated as on the level with biblical uh, teachings. So, and that has uh, a major impact on later on, on later teaching. So Halakha Moshe is treated uh, as a biblical teaching, even though it's part of the oral law. That's sort of the conclusion in a much more complex picture. Um, I'll read a, a little bit of a summary blurb which you probably quibble with some details, but hopefully this will be helpful. So much like the English language term law, halakha in rabbinic literature is used to refer to law as genre, right? Meaning like I'm a law student, I study law as opposed to accounting, it's a genre. We find, so, so we saw some of that here, right? Halakha as opposed to Mishnah, as opposed to Mikra, as it's a genre, a certain genre. Law as corpus, right? We also see that like Hilchot Shabbat, right? It's the Again, whether that's an uppercase law or an uppercase L law or lowercase L law, it's talking about the corpus, the collection of all the teachings about Shabbat, and law as a teaching or as a tradition. 
which we saw in many of the examples. Right, so just like law in English, you can say I'm a, I, I, uh, you know, I'm a, a law student. I study the genre of law, or I study the corpus of law, or you can say this law, right? Law number two hundred. So it, all of these things exist with the term halakha as well, right? Again, halakha overall as halakha as opposed to mikra or as opposed to mishnah, halakha as a uh, as a corpus hilchot x. Even if it doesn't mean that in the mishnah, certainly later on it comes to mean uh, a real corpus, and then. Halakha is a teaching of uh, you know, a tradition that you have from earlier on. So that's, that, that concludes this section of trying to get, get a bit of a sharper definition on the, on the various meanings of halakha. And uh, we'll take questions now if there are. And with the, our remaining time, we're going to uh, dig, dig down a bit deeper on the question of halakha as practical law versus the possibility that halakha is a bit less than practical, is a bit more theoretical, right? We said just now that din is the theoretical law or can be theoretical, logical, what the law should be. And halakha is what the law actually is, you know, in, as, a, as a, a practical, more, more conclusion uh, uh, result of what the law is. But we'll see it gets a bit more complicated. So first, any questions? And then we'll, we'll go forward. Yeah, Ellen. I thought that Halakha was derived from the laws in the Torah. But if you're saying they're just customs, what force do they have? Okay, so I, I think the, the fact that there are different meanings of Halakha is, is at least part of the answer to your question. So Halakha can be used to refer to everything, including interpretations of the law, interpretations of the Torah too, right? Because you'll have a tradition that you used to interpret it. So in, in the broader sense, it includes, you know, it includes everything. And I think, um, you know, if you're talking in a general sense, you want to say everything that's authoritative about Judaism, you might just call that halakha um, as, as a sort of catch, uh, catchphrase in, in the overall sense of the term. Um, yes. But uh, also, as we saw, halakha can refer to specific things that are traditions that are not necessarily in the Mishnah or not in the, in the Bible. So you have those two meanings, right? A more a local localized meaning of a tradition, maybe something that's not even, uh, not even uh, codified uh, or, 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 uh, or written in, in a text versus the broader meaning that incorporates all of, uh, all of Jewish law. I see Martha put in the chat, why do we use the term Beit Din instead of Beit Halakha? Because Din can also refer to a, a court case. So I mean, it can refer to logic, but it can also refer to a court case, whereas you wouldn't use the term Halakha for, uh, for a, uh, like a suit, a lawsuit. Right, a lawsuit can be a din. A lawsuit cannot be a cannot be called halakha. There may be halakhic issues that come up, but uh, okay. Other other questions before we go forward? All right. So let's jump in. And again, we're we're going to drill down on this question of is halakha always operative as opposed to theoretical law, or is it a bit more complex than that? So first, we'll start with uh, the discussion in Erevin about the, the big debate, long-term debate between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, two different schools, uh, one more lenient, one more strict. And at the end, a bakol, a divine, a heavenly voice came out and said, both the words of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel are the words of a living God. The law is like Beit Hillel, right? So what do we see from here? In terms of being part of the theoretical law, part of the, you know, the, the uh, words of a living God, which presumably you could call that theoretical law, right? They both are, are giving legal rulings that are representing God's word. That includes both Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. And at the same time, 
law for law to be operative, you need to have you can't have two opposite answers be in effect at the same time. We rule like Beit Hillel in practice. Why that is, you can look at the rest of that this passage another time. But um, there again, this is this reinforces the, the, the distinction we made between theoretical halacha or theoretical law and and operative law, where halacha is always or usually at least the operative law. However, it gets a bit more complex when we realize that there's a term, this, this term halakha lima'aseh, right? There's halakha, halakha we thought meant operative law, and then we sometimes find the contrast between halakha in the general sense and halakha lima'aseh. So let's look at this source. I don't know if we're going to see all of these for reasons of time, but look, the rabbis learned, we don't learn the halakha, the practical law, let's work with that definition for now, not based on pure study, not based on a story that one knows. The only way you can apply a previous teaching or story is if your teacher, a, a legal, you know, a, a jurist, a, a rabbinic authority says that this is that this is halakha that's supposed to be practical. If you ask, is this practical halakha? And they say yes. Then you should do it. But don't draw comparisons because you might get confused. So it sounds here, there's different ways of reading this, but at least one way of reading it is that if you study a, you know, a text and the text is telling you the halakha, that's not enough. You somehow need an additional level, not just halakha, but halakha lema'aseh. Maybe halakha itself is not yet, uh, is not, doesn't fully mean practical. Halakha may mean you know, something a bit less than that. Maybe in some, sometimes the theoretical law can also be referred to as halakha. Unless they specify, unless the rabbinic authority specifies that this is halakha that is practical, and then only if you have that clarification can you go forward, uh, go forward and do it. So um, that's an interesting point. And we're not going to look at the next source inside, but it's another example of where um, the, the Gemara says that Shmuel said something, and the question is, is does that just mean he was trying to teach the halakha practically? Or does that mean that actually Shmuel had two different levels? There's the, the halakha, you know, it's actually not wrong to do this in, in, in terms of the halakha, but in terms of halakha lema'aseh, in terms of the practical halakha, you shouldn't do it because you might mess up. Right? So it's sort of, you might make a mistake. You might, uh, you know, uh, you might leave your tillin on at night, which would be bad uh, for too long. You might not guard them properly or whatnot. So therefore, even though the halakha is, according to one interpretation, even though the halakha is, you can leave your tillin on at night, the halakha lema'aseh, the practical halakha is not to do that. So this view really seems to push back on what we said before, right? Halakha is can't be the fully practical law because then what is halakha lemaaseh when it's against halakha? So here there's a bit of a pushing back of halakha to be a bit more theoretical, right? Even the halakha isn't the fully final word because sometimes the halakha yields to the halakha lemaaseh. And similarly, we have this concept called halakha ve'en morinkein in the, in, the, in the Talmud in several places, which literally means it's the halakha, but we don't teach it. It's the law, we don't teach it because we don't want people follow it. So what does that mean? How can halakha be the practical law? It seems to be something less than the practical law because we don't want people to, uh, to follow it accidentally. So I think this is another case where we see that halakha, even though often, right, halakha in contrast to din, din is more theoretical, halakha is more the practical conclusion, but it's still a step removed from being fully practical. 
because uh, we have these ultra, we have these additional categories of halakha ma'aseh, which sometimes is in contrast halakha, or halakha the in morinkain, which is again a, a standard halakha is halakha, halakha that you do rule like, but sometimes you can have a halakha that you don't actually rule. So maybe there's a difference between there's different ways of looking at it, right? You can say that the halakha is fully the the the, the practical law is fully X, just we don't talk about it, or you can say if you want to be a bit more um, you know, uh, if you want to you have certain assumptions about what law can be. If no one knows the law, can that really be the law? So if you take that, that, that uh, view, which is more a sociological de definition of the law, um, if, if this is the law, but no one says you can do it, then in practice, it's not, the, it's not actually the law. It's not the law as applied. Right? It, it just because the law in some theoretical sense doesn't mean it's the actual law. And we'll now turn with our last couple of minutes to uh, an additional function of the term halakha, which is halakha as a legal determination. So this, you encounter this a fair amount in the Bavli, where you'll go through a whole Talmudic discussion, and it's not clear who, the, who, you know, who uh, wins the day in, this, in the Talmudic debate. And then at the end, someone will say, the Hilchata ke Rav, right? The, the Hilchata, the halakha, follows Rav, period. And then you see all the later commentators and, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, Jewish legal scholars all say, okay, well, we, we rule like Rav because the, the, the Gemara tells us to, so we follow that. So that, that, that phenomenon exists already in the Mishnah. Just one example here, a whole debate on how, on what qualifies someone to become a mamzer, uh, unfortunately. And one view is of, of uh, Shimon Atimni, it's based on Chayvei Karitot, Bidei Shamayim, Valachakid The law follows him. That's somehow stuck into the Mishnah. And we find it in, in Tosefta, Valachakidivrei um, Beit Hillel, in this particular case. And we find it in the Bavli, as was mentioned, here's Vihilchata Kirabah. Different Rabbi Rabbah, the halakha is like him. Usually in the Bavli, the Hilchatas are late additions. They're added late, later, whether by Savoraim or even by Geonim, maybe as late as uh, you know, centuries after the Talmud itself was closed. Someone managed to sneak in these legal conclusions. And as was mentioned, they're extremely influential. If the Gemara says Hilchata ke, ke X, the, that the law follows a different, the, whichever rabbi, the chances are that's going to propagate itself very extensively in later literature. So that's an interesting thing to know. And just be, to, before we close and or go to questions, um, one, one thing I've been doing some research on, which I think is a really cool phenomenon, is there's a shift that happens um, early on in the Amoraic period in terms of what qualifies for halakha, meaning or let's phrase this as a question. Right, let's say the rabbis are all writing in the period after the destruction of the temple. Right, all rabbinic literature is codified after the destruction of the temple. So what about sacrifices? Right, if someone, if uh, there's a debate about how to do a certain sacrifice, whether it's disqualified or not, would you say there, that, would you draw a halachic conclusion about that? Would you say, you know, you can bring the sacrifice, so you can't. What do people think in theory? What would you guess? No, it'd be unnecessary. It's purely hypothetical. It's right, so purely din. Right, it's it's only a theoretical law. There is no practical law right now, so it's it's all theoretical. So maybe you shouldn't say hilchata. On the other hand, well, you might say the fact that we can't practice it is external. Is a you know it's a it's a it's not it's it's a technical problem, but it's not fundamental to the law. The law has a practical conclusion, even if it's inoperable right now. So you could you could argue it either way. What's fascinating. Um, is that 
Throughout Tanaitic literature, you have a handful of cases of Hilkata about laws that are inapplicable, primarily temple-related. In the first generation of Amoraim, you also have that uh, a halakhic conclusion. And once you get to the third generation of Amoraim, which is where most of the teachings are, the third generation and later, that's where the, the, the more off-mentioned names are, mostly, you do not find any cases of Hilkata about legal matters with a couple of exceptions, but here are the exceptions. Um, we're not going to go through the, the discussion here. It's about pigul, disqualifying an offering through improper intention to bring it at the wrong time. So well, there's all debate about that. And Rav was a first century Amora early on, back when they did these things. Rav said, He rules like that it's pigul. If it's uh, if it's not sevachutz, but not if it's not sevachim, he said he gives a halachic ruling. Amar Rava, Rava was in the fourth generation, or on some versions of the Talmud, it's Rav Yosef. In the third generation, he objects. He says, Mishicha, you're giving a halachic ruling about what's going to happen, what's only applicable in messianic times. How can you do that? Halacha, by definition, is uh, is practical, and this is not practical. So, okay, if you don't like that, maybe we shouldn't learn, we shouldn't ever learn anything about sacrifice. We should never learn all of, say there, Kalashim, we should never learn all of the, the entire order of, of, of sacrifice and temple in the Mishnah and in the Gemara because it's not relevant, not practical now. Right? The law is only going to be applicable in the time of the Mashiach. No, we study it. Why do we study it? Because we study and get reward. Uh, God wants us to study it, and he rewards us for studying it. So the same thing here. Our case also, you can study it, and you can give a ruling, and you can receive reward for it. What's the problem? And the response is, Here's what I'm saying. Or, I have no opposition to studying sacrificial matters. I only have an opposition to, to uh, giving a halachic ruling about sacrificial matters. That's the objection that Rava and or Yosef makes. There's, a, there's another, a parallel sugya in Sanhedrin with basically the same back and forth, slightly different names. But in both cases, it's where Rav, a first generation Amora, says, we rule like person X in this theoretical inapplicable area. And a third or fourth generation Amora says, no, we don't. We don't do Hilchata anymore. And again, what, what I found is that there are no cases where later, Amoraim do make halachic conclusions, or where there's anonymous halachic conclusions for areas of law that are not practical. So it's like fascinating. If you look at, let's say, Tractate Minachot, which is mostly about um, non-animal offerings, throughout the whole Masechta that talks about sacrifice, there's nothing, there's no Hilkatas. There's one small section of one chapter that talks about uh, Tefillin, Mezuzah, Sefer Torah, and there you have a dozen different cases where it says Hilkata. It's a very, very clear contrast. Again, you can look at I, I ran the numbers. I looked at all the cases. You, it's a huge, a huge uh, contrast, clearly a pattern. And what I argue is that Hilchata, this, this conclusion language as meaning, uh, as meaning that uh, the practical law is X. So early on, that was applied even to inapplicable theoretical law. And at this point, around the third generation, they said, actually, that's not what halakha means. Halakha means practical law in a more practical sense, at least when we're making these halakha conclusions. And therefore, we can't do it uh, we can't apply it to sacrificial matters. So I think you know that this issue of to what degree halacha is practical or theoretical 
is itself litigated um, throughout Hazal, throughout within rabbinic literature itself in these various ways. Halakha, but but lemaseh versus halakha not lemaseh, or halakha ve'in morinkin, right? It's halakha but you don't tell people. Or hilchata, you rule on a theoretical thing, but then saying hilchata l'meshicha, we only rule on practical things. So this really, um, this really goes back and forth uh, in in different ways, and and shows some of the richness of halakha. Again, we have a pretty clear, uh, we have a pretty clear general range of definitions of what it can mean, but also we see how the issue is litigated back and forth in rabbinic literature. Are there any questions or comments uh, overall? Yeah, Michael. So uh, I was thinking when you were talking about the, uh, the examples about uh, the sugi and brachot about Eid Mit Palilin Ela Betoch right that you only can pray when uh, you're in the midst of this so so the, the implication seems to be that you know one of the one of the elements of halakha is that it's simple that it's done right that you're not distracted by it so does that meaning sort of hint at the idea that halakha is you know this uh, this kind of like you know you can always wonder about an agadah right but halakha once you know what it is you don't have to explore it any further um i so i think yes i think i think that that is an aspect of halakha that's relevant there although there's it's a bit tricky the source you cited because as you said halakha psuka a, a clearly decided uh, clear-cut halakha so that implies that there are some halakha that are less clear-cut right halakha that has a major debate about it let's say or maybe a complex discussion. So I think you are right that that the law lends itself to clear answers, mutar, asur, um, right, or whatnot, um, but uh, permitted, prohibited, but at the same time, it's not always simple. And uh, that's why we need to specify a halakha psukha, a simple halakha, as opposed to any halakha, because some of the halakha actually are pretty complicated. But the example they give is seems like a complicated one, right? It's, it's, uh... It's it's women taking upon themselves something about uh, about nida, and it seems like that's not the example you would think would be like it. Like it's well, the so I think, end I think point of actually, the process. So that's actually interesting for another reason. I mean that that's a halakha in the sense that there's no early source for it, right? It's more or less a minhag that was taken on and uh, and takes on halachic status, right? I mean it's interesting. Uh, uh, the idea of, of uh, waiting seven days for tipat dam kechardal, whatever exactly the legal innovation is there, it seems to not have been the case previously. There's a legal innovation based on women's practice, as reported by Rav Zera, and that becomes authoritative. And uh, it seems to take on, if you look in later halakhic sources, it may be it may take on the status of dirabanan rather than minhag. It may have, get, have gotten upgraded. But it's interesting that that's called a halakha because it's halakha in the sense of tradition, and halakha in the sense of, of a practical ruling. So I also, I don't think it's complicated. It's not complicated in terms of the ruling. It's complicated how we got there. But the ruling is very simple, right? They wait seven days. That's pretty straightforward, but how you got there is more complex. Um, I see someone sent me a, a direct, uh, direct message. I'll read it. It sounds like already in the post-temple period, they were attempting to grapple with the issue of authoritative ancient sources, contradicting everyone's collective memory of contemporary practice. And they often chose to favor practice um, So I don't know which specific examples we discussed 
uh, this question was referring to. Although, yes, I think that is that tension is an important part of rabbinic literature. Some have argued that uh, this is a difference between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Ishmael and their corresponding school midrashic schools. That Rabbi Akiva is more likely to favor midra, uh, uh, halacha, the, the old tradition, whereas Rabbi Ishmael is more likely to favor biblical interpretation um, or whatnot. And then, and then there's there's the further question of to what extent halacha traditions you have correspond to what people are doing. And again, that's also uh, <coughs> litigated in the Talmud in a bunch of places. Right? You see things, uh, go out and see what the people are doing as an explicit giving uh, interpretive power to practice and the, the idea of minhag, which comes up in a variety of places. So we, we, we do see that. And sometimes that's in contrast to the teaching. So yeah, hundred percent that, that comes up. Um, again, if we were studying something broader, we we're studying how halacha works overall, a massive topic, this would be an important piece of it. Um, other, other questions or comments before we close. And of course, I'm always uh, happy to be reached um, by email or whatnot to discuss the, uh, to discuss the topic. I'll just put my email in the uh, in the chat. It's also on the PDF. So feel free to contact me. But if there are any questions or comments now, happy to take those as well. It um, seems like it seems like for the everyday person, someone like myself, it seems like these the distinctions you're drawing are not necessary for my everyday observance. The, the and goal yet, of this class is not whole, to uh, yeah. There's a the whole backstory not... here of the history of the term and how the different ways it could be understood that completely, you know, has I've bypassed it completely. And I have a very simple-minded understanding of what halacha means that governs my life. And is it is it is that okay? Is it necessary for me to have a deeper understanding? And, I think, I mean, you're, you're now entering into the, you're, you're, we're doing less uh, theoretical research about a term and more uh, rabbinic pastoral work, but I think, I think one can be a fully, a fully good Jew without knowing any of the content of this year. That being said, or this class, that being said, I think it, it is enriching and helpful to understand what a term means and the different yes. valences of it and the different issues that come up in understanding, it, especially such an important term, term as halacha. Yes. So yes, um, I think, uh, I don't, I don't think, it's not like this is not uh, a principle of Meaning halakha is a principle of Judaism, but the, the exact shifts in meaning over time of the term is not a principle of Judaism, but hopefully it's uh, informative and, uh, and helpful. Yeah. This, it, yeah. Um, uh, what exactly is the difference between halakha and halakha ma'aseh? Are you saying that the, I know you, you said later um, that the, the interpretation of what halakha means uh, seemed to shift over time from the first generation of Amorayim to the third generation of Amorayim. But uh, like, like, yeah. So like, what, what, what's the difference between halacha and halacha ma'aseh? So it's one thing that's a little tricky and we didn't have time to get into this in detail is that there's a debate among later interpreters as to how to understand that. Is halacha ma'aseh just emphasizing the practical aspect of halacha that's always there because halacha is always practical? Or is halakha lamaseh really a different level, a different category in a sense than halakha? So there's halakha theory and halakha lamaseh, which is the way um, in, in the uh, toast vote there, take a look on, on the sheet. The, the second opinion seems to really think it's a different sock. There's halakha, which is, halakha is, you know, it's mutar, and then halakha lamaseh is asur. So those are clearly two different layers, and that means that halakha, you know, just halakha alone is not fully practical because it's in contrast to halakha lamaseh. 
Um, so that's, yeah, that, and again, it's for different reasons, right? Like in theory, this should be permitted on a halakhic, there's a lot of basis to permit this, but there's reason to worry. So we'll prohibit it, you know, halakhic lama it, it seemed like you spent a good amount of this shior just establishing like the contrast between halakha and deen. Like deen is like what it, what, what it is theoretically, but halakha is like practical. So like, are you, sometimes, are you sometimes getting different around? levels of okay. practical here, right? Sometimes okay. there's there's practical, meaning not just what you would have thought the halakha should be, but this is what the halakha is. And yet, it's not the halakha I tell people because they might get confused, right? So you can see there's two different levels of practical, of the, the law as a conclusion, right? What The law that governs us, so to speak, is on the one hand, X, because this is what the law is uh, on paper. And at the same time, Y, we don't tell everyone that because... We don't want, you know, whatever the case may be, we don't want people to make a mistake. So you, are, you saying, on, yeah. are you saying something that's a halacha, but not a halacha ma'aseh, is uh, just like a halacha in Maureen Kane? Like, we, 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 are you saying that that's a... That's one way of understanding it. That's one way of understanding okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. If there's nothing... Further, um, I'll invite Michael to give uh, some upcoming, uh, upcoming attractions. And I just wanted to thank everyone for joining and look forward to uh, learning together in the next couple of weeks. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Rabbi Zuckier, for this great start. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing everyone back here next week for the second session of this same, uh, this same shear. This is one of three new classes that we have starting this week, uh, we also earlier today had the beginning of exploring the philosophy of halakha with Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens and a class for teenage girls, All Our Women Are Important, with Rabbi Leah Sarna. You can get information about those if you are interested in signing up. It's not too late. Uh, you can go to drisha.org slash classes. I'm also putting that in the chat and you can find registration information there. We also have a number of events coming up related to Pasach that uh, I think it would be great for, for people to be at. Uh, we're really excited about a few of them. We have our annual Rappaport Memorial Lecture with Rabbi Alex Israel on uh, Sunday, March 14th on the topic of From the Sea to Sinai, Tests of the Wilderness. We also have a great event called Seder Telling coming up on Tuesday, March 23rd. It is going to be an opportunity for us to study together with a number of different storytellers and Jewish educators thinking through the notion of the Seder as an act of retelling and an opportunity for some of these folks to think about telling the Pesach story in their own words, bringing new versions and new imaginations of some familiar themes to us. So we're really excited to see this great, great set of, of teachers and personalities coming together for that. Finally, we also have a Tani Bechorot Sium coming up with Rabbi Leah Sarna on uh, Thursday, March 25th at eight in the morning Eastern for anyone who is uh, obligated to fast on Tani Bechorot and wants to exempt themselves from doing so by participating in 
a siyum on Masachet Psachim, which Rabbi Nitzarna is, is currently finishing up with Daf Yomi cycle. Uh, those are all coming up uh, pre-Pesach, and then stay tuned for some of our classes that will be going on during Sphira, which we will have information out about hopefully very soon. Uh, so yeah, thank you everyone for being here. We hope that you'll check out some of those offerings. Again, you can you can follow some of those individual links, but you can also always go to drisha.org slash classes to find the full roster. Thank you everyone for being here and uh, we'll see you next week, hopefully. Have a great night.